0: is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive kV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 kV With excellent patient and staff safety features, and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 694 Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Conventus as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to RadChat, the multi award winning first therapeutic red dog oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 77. My name is Naman Joka Anderson, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Joe McNamara.
2: Hi, everyone.
1: So, a huge thank you to our last guest, Joss Harding, who talked about her role as a dental hygienist and the importance of good evidence based oral and dental hygiene. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. Uh, so, we're very pleased to introduce our guest this evening, Chris Helenger, um, who will be discussing her experience of cancer. Having stereotactic radio surgery and also the charity copper field that she set up. So, hi Chris, how are you?
3: Hi, good, thank you. How are you?
1: Good. We've both been very excited, texting each other probably since we woke up, uh, that getting you on today. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but it's a huge pleasure to have you. Well,
3: no pressure then.
1: Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself, Chris?
3: Sure. Um, so, I have been living with stage four breast cancer since 2009, so almost 14 years now. It'll be 14 years in February. And so I was diagnosed straight away with late stage breast cancer. Um, There was no sort of primary and then, you know, um, decided to go somewhere else. It's, you know, we found it late um, because I wasn't aware that I should know my boobs and I had been ignoring symptoms for a long time and my GP didn't take it very seriously because I was really young. And so, yeah, I was diagnosed at 23 and have been you know living with this it's not been it's not been dreamy it's not been the best experience but i have been um living my life alongside breast cancer for that amount of time um it originally spread to my bones but since then has spread to other parts of my body which i guess we'll discuss today including my brain um and i I feel i always feel so lucky but also horrified at the amount of treatments that I need and the amount of, I mean, amazing technology, science and all the rest of it's gone into keeping me here, but also, like, heartbroken a lot of the time that I need it and that I have to still go through this every day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing well at the moment.
2: What treatments are you having at the moment, Chris?
3: So, at the moment, I'm on um, chemotherapy. I have been avoiding IV chemotherapy for a really long time. I had it at the start of my treatment and um, that was to kind of shrink the tumour in my breast so that we could remove it. And then after that I was put on various other systemic treatments um, that kind of targeted my very hormone sensitive breast cancer. But because cancer is so smart and so clever it decided to switch and it's no longer Liking hormones to, to grow, so um, I needed to switch. I've, I mean, I've switched treatments quite quite a lot, but currently, I'm on a relatively new drug um, called Tridelvi, Well, that's the sort of um, drug company name that they've given it, and um, it's uh, it's one that targets triple negative breast cancer. So, I uh, that that's kind of my best hope at the moment because um, I have liver tumours that are very annoying and keep wanting to grow and um, progressing so I'm trying to get a handle on that at the moment um, and I've been on this chemotherapy since October so I've had stints where I've been on certain treatments I was on an oral chemotherapy called cape Cydabin for four years which was a I didn't realise what a blissful time I was having I think um and then when a drug starts working, you kind of have to look at the pill cupboard and go, what's left? And thankfully, I have a a pretty great oncologist who understands my need for quality of life, and that I won't um, give that up for much. Um, and so we've been, as ex- sort of exhausting all the other options before we decided to, well, I had to decide to go to IV chemotherapy again.
1: Sorry to take you back, Chris, but obviously you said the GP wasn't very accommodating Mm. and you mentioned that phrase, you know, you're too young. That's something I've heard from people my age and younger who are currently being diagnosed with later stage because their GP has fobbed them off. How did you eventually get diagnosed then?
3: So it was because I have a very persistent mother who told me to go back to the GP and ask for a referral. Um, It really is down to that. Um, Yeah, my... The original GP I saw the female and she was adamant that it was hormonal changes and 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 probably nine times out of ten they are you know I I had probably lumpy boobs anyway but there was just a a very large lump that needed investigating and then um, I was okay with that answer but the symptoms were progressing and not getting any better and even with her suggestion of you know Taking evening primrose oil that didn't help, and I came. I was away for a while, and then when I came back, I went back to the GP. But the original GP was on holiday, so I saw a guy this time who I'd seen before. Um, it was in a small town, so you kind of get to see the same GPs. And then, and he was adamant that because I'd been in, I'd been examined six months earlier, that it would be still fine and nothing to worry about. So. Um, my mum was just not convinced, and because I was having quite a lot of pain in my left side and in my armpit, and at this point also I was having—I mean, I was waking up with bloodstained T-shirts. Um, my mum said, "You have to go back and ask for a referral." And eventually, I was referred, and yada yada, I was told I had breast cancer.
2: And that's where ultimately Copperfield started, isn't it, Chris? Yeah. Around the fact that you had not necessarily been listened to but also about the fact that you weren't aware that you had to know your own body and check your breasts and chest yeah um can you tell us about kind of that start of an amazing charity
3: she says wearing a copperfield t-shirt jumper so number one fan i'm speaking to today um yeah i you know, this is the blame's not completely on me here. It's not about saying that it's all down to you, but that sense of empowerment and encouragement that you have the power to know yourself and know your body is actually a good thing, it's nothing to be scared of. And um, knowing yourself means that you're more likely to notice if something's not right. And we're all about like knowing what's normal for you, and that's you know, that might change throughout the month um if you identify as female and I think I think if you if you know yourself you're more likely to then hopefully go to the GP if you notice something that's not right um and that's that's where it could have made such a massive difference to me and my story had I had I been able to say to my GP well I know this isn't right because I've noticed this lump for x amount of time and it's it's not going with my cycles it's not it's not consistent with that Um, and because I was in this strong belief that the doctor's always right even though that can't even make sense because the doctor doesn't know your body at all Um, but I just trusted that she did know and obviously nine times out of ten like I said before she is not going to see a young patient with breast cancer and so she was erring on the side of this isn't going to be breast cancer and therefore I wasn't referred um, but had I come in there all guns blazing saying I know this isn't right for me because I've been checking myself for X amount of years And this needs to be investigated I would like to think that she would say oh you've taken one sort of doubt away from me And I, and I now feel more confident to refer you because you've told me that um, So it's, you know, it's a partnership, it's a, it's a collaboration, it's a everyone should play their part in this situation and if you have the knowledge, you are more likely to get an earlier diagnosis.
1: I think the key word there is trust, isn't it? Trust mm. in medical professionals. We should know what we're doing, but I, th- I suppose general practitioners, they are general. Yeah. Um, that's their job. So specialists, mm. um, I know there are quite a few GPs who might specialise in diabetes or cancer or something like that, just as an extracurricular. But going in, as you said, look, all guns blazing, not everyone would do that. Some people, like I have a friend who's a GP and he, he always says if you want something done with a GP just go in and say what you want Because they only have seven minutes with you and actually they'd prefer if you just tell them what you want With the two week wait pathways, um, so I went down that route because of basically cycling too much and the pollution in London And I got esophagitis but it was like a lump and I remember saying that to my GP and saying look I'm worried about cancer That was it and it, it just a penny dropped for him and then he didn't care that I was 27 at the time straight away put me in the two week wait but nothing happened like everything was clear but Mm. I think as you said it's knowing what to say and it's strange that almost we're having to get to that point now with patients to guide them to say the right things to get what's required if that makes sense
3: yeah yeah it's frustrating but equally it's going to help everyone if you get to the answers as quickly as possible so
2: Chris how did that pathway then lead to starting up copperfield because i would imagine that for a lot of people who are going through an initial cancer diagnosis and especially for you having already been diagnosed with secondary breast cancer not everyone would go do you know what i'm gonna set up a charity (laughs) and work my absolute ass off um and put hours into something um rather than maybe thinking about i'm just gonna take it easy and I'm just gonna spend lots of time with my family and I'm gonna do all the things I want to do
3: yeah um I guess I was in a, a weird point in my life where I had well I you know I'd been working in China and then suddenly I was back home living with my mum and my friends were kind of busy getting on with their lives and I was just spending a lot of time in hospital and I had a lot of time to think um about what happened and how I'd got there and I just couldn't help but wonder how different things could have been had I been more aware of the signs and symptoms, been aware of the lump that had been growing in my breast for so long. And, um, and that curiosity just sparked research into why is it young people aren't being told this information and then realising that actually they're just not. No one's getting that, you know, we're not targeting young people when it's such a crucial time to learn this sort of lesson. Um, and because no one was doing that I felt compelled to do it Um, there was no doubt in my mind that it had to be done and obviously with the help of friends and my twin sister we made it happen Um, and it it, it was very much a a need it wasn't even a consideration that should we, shouldn't we it was a let's give it a go, let's see how young people respond to what we have to say to them about their Boobs, and then see where it takes us. And originally, you know, we didn't necessarily want to start off as a charity. We didn't. We just wanted to be a campaign. We just wanted to shout very loudly that people should check their boobs. That's all we really wanted. And then the more we were doing, the more sort of, I guess, um, the more things you have to put in place, and the more protocols and strategy and things you need, and ultimately, in order to do it correctly and with all the right um, and and legally as well you need you unfortunately you need you need to be a registered charity or you know a community group or something like that um, and at the time it, it made sense to us to register as, as a charity because we we had already proven for about six months that there was a need for what we were doing and people were responding so well to it and then we became a charity and then it hasn't really stopped since then um, yeah so it was really just. A, it was. I never even considered that I wouldn't start feel. It was so immediate um, off the back of what happened to me in my story um, that I did. I wouldn't. I have no idea what else I'd be doing. No idea. People ask me that all the time, and I have literally haven't got a clue.
2: Third most recognised charity in the in the country.
3: Yeah, yeah, cancer cancer charity. I think yeah, um, yeah you know, and it it's really just about um, making sure that young people are equipped with this information. Um, it makes sense to us, and unfortunately, you know, at the moment, fourteen years down the line, we're still needed. Which, had you asked me that fourteen years ago, I think, oh, is that, oh that sounds like a long time. But I mean it's gone in a flash and I think it's it's frustrating that we are still needed but um, still have the energy to keep going so well the charity does m- me not so much but um, and we're doing incredible work so it, we see the impact and we see the point of it Um, and ultimately people are being diagnosed early because of you know the messages that we put out there so that's why
1: mm. And that's that's the key, isn't it? So you know, fourteen years. Had you not done this, think of the people who might have also been missed. That's the the legacy and the amazing. I like, I love the social media. Mm. If anyone listening doesn't follow Copperfield on social media, I love the posts. Um, and I know, my other half has got everyone who's female and anyone really in her family to get the text every month yeah. to make sure they do check themselves and things like that. But that legacy going forward, which I think as a young person there's so many more things in your life that you're worried about so body image money you know diet wh- whatever I think the, the image of a cancer patient is normally someone in their 70s and 80s who's had a good life and now this is hitting them then so that kind of image now I suppose what's your experience been you know in the early 20s going through the whole process and have you kind of noticed anything with supporting other people through the journey as well
3: um. It's interesting because obviously I don't know any different, and I spent yeah most of my twenties with cancer, and like I'm halfway through my thirties now, so I don't really know proper adulthood without cancer. Um, it's kind of weird if you think about it. Um, but how you're saying, how you just said that you know the image of cancer is typically an older person, and I think at the time when I was first diagnosed, absolutely it was, and there was no support for me in where I was diagnosed, um, the nurse, my breast cancer nurse, said, well, oh, there is a support group, but you'd be the youngest person there. And I thought, well, that's just put me off. I'm not going to go to that. Um, but now I'd say it's gotten a lot better in terms of um, like, uh, visibility for young people were always being diagnosed with cancer, but there just wasn't visibility of them. And so now we, we are way more aware that it happens to young people and that there is more support for younger people out there, which I'm glad about. And I think the face of cancer has changed, certainly, since I was diagnosed. Um, and, it, it, yeah, but at the, ta- at the time for me, th- there, was, there was nothing. And, and I guess, in a way, um, that was another reason to kind of spearhead this, you know, cancer education campaign and kind of get the word out there to young people because when we were standing in a field speaking to young people about um their boobs they you know they might tell us that their grandma had breast cancer or their aunties or whatever and then we'd we'd say that's you know you know that's that's a common very common disease so it's very likely that you're going to know someone with this disease but have you ever been aware that you could potentially get it at a younger age and um, that's where the penny sort of dropped and in not in a scary way you know, we're not there to kind of tell people that they're going to get cancer, breast cancer but it's about it's really just a sense of empowerment and like you were just saying you know, our lives are so busy and I think if we can make it slightly easier for someone to just kind of take the pressure off with like, our text reminder service or following us on social media I think that is just an easy step to kind of go, like, this isn't something that you have to be burdened with it's just something that you need to implement into your life though and it doesn't have to be a big deal
2: and um, as someone who has done a copper trek and mm-hmm. um, which amazing like it is life-changing I wouldn't necessarily have said doing the actual trek itself was life-changing um, but it's the after reflection and the friendships you make and like it is a field community it yeah. is pretty special to be part of something like that and um, So it is absolutely amazing and I know that you do get a warm sense of achievement and even for someone like me who is a healthcare professional and we do rad chat and everything, I still had people going, I've just been diagnosed because I saw your um, social media about doing Copper Trek and I clicked on Copper Trek and I saw what it was about and I thought, oh I haven't checked my boobs recently. So everyone who is involved in that charity then has the empowerment to Essentially, disseminate that education and learning mm. which is so so special and yeah. the num- the sheer number of lives that must have been saved as a consequence of that must just make you feel like oh my gosh look at the impact that I and the team have have been able to
3: make yeah uh, you know we, got, we can never I guess quantify it and it's not as simple as well maybe simple is not the right word but With other organisations, where you think, oh, our charity has produced uh, this amount of, I don't know, school chairs and tables for x amount of students, or you know, it's it's not as it's not a clear number, but it's anecdotal evidence, and it's the cons. It is the basically every day we get a message from someone saying, I just feel so much better knowing that I have this information. I can be less scared about it or I've been diagnosed early and I feel like the outcome is I feel better about knowing that we've caught it early um and it's funny that the corporate treks are you know they are a fundraiser essentially they're not they're not there to educate people but the offshoot of that the, and the the bonuses that we've seen off the back of the track has been like mind-blowing really and like yeah, that sense of community that's be, cr- been created from doing those fundraising treks and, I mean, all over the place, really, um, has been really, really special. And I think, yeah, if that, then it is, you are creating, like, like a herd of awareness raisers who will bring that into their lives. And that's something we hadn't, I guess, really ever considered because, you know, as, as many charities you have to think about, you have to think, is this viable as a fundraiser? And then now we know that it is. Everything else on top of that is an absolute bonus, and it's it's so nice to see. And like I, when I see it, when I go to events, Copperfield events or whatever, and I see all this like these clusters of people that I've trekked together, I was like, wow, they feel like a family. It's crazy.
2: So Chris, radiotherapy—you've mm. had lots of radiotherapy and radiosurgery, haven't yeah. you, as part of your cancer journey? Can you talk to us about your experience of that and kind of advocating for your own treatment? And I know you work with Electa, don't you, mm. um, to kind of give give the patient side of what the treatment is like?
3: Yeah. So I, I think um, anyone who's got breast cancer will probably understand already know that as part of the treatment you're likely to have radiotherapy if you've had surgery just to kind of mop up the rest of the any cancer cells that might be lingering in your chest so I had that the, the year I was diagnosed and then I've had radiotherapy to help with things like bone pain because I've got disease in my um, spine and um, pelvis and hips And I've always found it so helpful, although the spine, when I originally had spine radiotherapy, again, the year I was diagnosed, it was quite needed at that point, because obviously we'd been unaware that it was been been sort of lingering there for so many years. Um, The amount of radiotherapy I needed there kind of helped, unfortunately, made my spine crumble a bit. And then off the back of that, I needed some some cement work put into my spine. So it's t- it, it has its benefits. And then it also totally, ha- I've experienced it, you know, um, causing other issues. Um, but on the whole, I'm just so grateful that that is an option. And then, so, and then a couple of years later after that, I would have some radiotherapy to my pelvis to help with some pain. And it's always been really helpful. But then in 2012, after like having an extended period of headaches... And um, as it turns out, they would never have caused... The, the tumour that we found in my brain would never have caused headaches. I'm just very headachey. I've never had symptoms for my brain tumours. Um, but we did a scan anyway, because I had an oncologist who I could easily persuade to do scans. And that's when we found this very tiny um, tumour in my brain, in just one area. And I had stereotactic radiotherapy had a clinic in London at Charing Cross Hospital Um, and that treated it beautifully it was you know very targeted Um, there was no suggestion of frying my whole brain at that point because it was such a small area and then two years after that we found another one in a different area again we treated it the same way and then in 2018 um, again just a routine brain scan showed multiple brain lesions in my brain like a real scattering like you know like Christmas lights in my brain and again tiny absolutely tiny and asymptomatic Um, and at that point I'd already moved to Cornwall and as is sort of the only option down here it's to have um, whole brain radiotherapy and that's obviously when they're not just treating the cancer, but the entire beautiful, healthy brain. Um, and that's just to make sure that anything that might be growing is being treated. And I wasn't down with that, because, especially because I hadn't been having any symptoms. And because I knew that targeted radiotherapy has done such a brilliant job in the past, I was so baffled that I couldn't, again, have really targeted treatment. And it was only because... I think I'd, I'd become a bit of a cancer veteran. I've been around the cancer block a few times to kind of go question things more and thankfully have an address book of people that I could speak to, one of which was a consultant at um, my hospice, my old hospice in London. Um, and I said to her, Do you know anyone in London who could look at my brain scan and kind of tell me that I don't need whole brain radiotherapy <laughs> and that we could do something more targeted? And she just said, "Leave it with me." And then the next step, I the next within a few days, I was seen by the brilliant team at UCLH, who offered me gamma knife radiotherapy. Um, and I, I guess, looking back, there is there is some frustration because had I not done that research myself, I wouldn't have had that treatment. Um, but that treatment wasn't an option here in Cornwall. There is, it, there is a chance I could have had more um, targeted treatment at in Devon. But they have different protocols and different rules for how many tumours they're allowed to treat. Whereas Lon- in London, they said, well, it's not about how many, it's about the vo- total volume of tumours. So I was so perplexed. I mean, I was, so, I was just so happy that someone could treat me in a more targeted way. But also so annoyed and perplexed that there could be different rules for different places um, but you know I just had to I was just glad to have gamma knife and to have access to this amazing technology and essentially have uh, in that initial treatment in the beginning of 2018 I had about f- 15 tiny tumors treated with um, gamma knife radio surgery, and then three months later we found more and three months later we found more so in in 2018 I had a total of like almost 60 brain tumors treated with gamma knife um and the the good thing about the team there is that they saw it as really um listening to me as a patient and what I wanted quality of life wise and understanding that the impact of giving me whole brain therapy would would have been vastly different to giving me very targeted radiotherapy which in the end in 2018 they said they treated the 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 size of about if you added all the tumors together in one little clump it would be around the size of a sugar cube and obviously that is hugely that that amount of cancer treated isn't going to isn't um that's that's a huge hugely different amount of gamma rays being used on my brain as well and I and I guess I'm not anti any treatment I'm just I'm just anti giving me treatment when I don't need it so for me whole brain therapy is still in the cupboard I'm not saying that I might not ever need it but I will only need it or have it when I know it's that's the only thing literally the only thing that I can use to kind of get rid of these little buggers um, so I, I, the, the, yeah, the team in Queen Square In London At the neuro, neurological clinic Are amazing I could rave about them all day long um, They really Really do care about their patients um, And then off the back of that I got talking I, 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 I got to talk More about the treatment that I was having there And Elector Got wind of it and elect to obviously make the machines, um, and they were very keen for me to share my story, which I've been doing over the last few years. Um, I'm very happy to do because I want to inform the people that work in these places what um, what life looks like for a patient like me, and what quality of life means to me, and um, and what this treatment means to me. Um, the treatment itself is not fun. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, You know, sometimes I've had to have a metal frame bolted to my head. The last time, thankfully, I was able to get away with a mask. I understand why these things are needed, but they're not pleasant. And thankfully, sedatives have played a big part in my treatment. Um, But I've spent, I mean, there was was one treatment day when I needed to spend eight hours in the machine to have the tumours zapped. So you know, like I said at the start, this is just, I'm I'm so amazed and horrified, all well, at the same time, all the time by the treatments that are available. Um, but I just wish more people were given access to treatments like this. Um, yeah, and so the last time I had some gamma knife uh, was in December this year, so not that long ago, and I'm yet to hear how that's gone but presumably it would have treated the, the tumors beautifully like it always has um and hopefully there's no new ones brewing but you just never know
1: thank you for sharing um the postcode lottery side of things is something joe and i mm. work with Radiotherapy uk you know a lot it <clears throat> comes up in every aspect every region is slightly different what they can offer and people being sent around to different areas in the country to try and get treatment again with the NHS you can be diagnosed somewhere then you can ask to go to a specific hospital so at the moment with the cancer backlog there are regions uh, in and around London that are inundated they don't have the capacity so people are traveling sort of four hours one way to get treatment every day because there's availability in one of the London centres um so yeah so that's something which uh, i don't know to be quite blunt i think is getting a bit worse at the moment um i think we're feeling a lot of pressure on the ground it's not enough of us anyway um but we're trying obviously to do our best um did you know much about radiotherapy before you ever went through the treatment chris
3: no nothing absolutely nothing
1: and then before you went for the treatment and stuff did you feel like you were prepared
3: um I don't think you can ever fully re- prepare yourself for gamma knife um and you know Queen's Square is is they treat private patients as well as NHS patients so maybe they've kitted it out especially nice there for that reason um but it they've made it as nice as it can be but there's only, there's only so much you can you can do essentially you're going to have to lie on a machine and not move and count away the minutes and hope it works that's it and come away from it thinking this has this has to work um so i i i got to go to the electro factory and actually see these machines being made and you know all the work that i've done since then has made me understand it a bit more and even, I mean, the last time I went to Green to Square and I saw my um, brain surgeon, I was like, oh, what's, what's the half-life of the, of the machine at the moment? Because, you know, that's the sort of chat we have now. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, we're, we're reaching the end, actually. I mean, you guys can explain that for your listeners a bit better than I can. But, and I was like, that means I'm going to be in the machine potentially longer than I would really need to be, which is great but um, again you know and, and just like the fact that they have to like close all these roads to get all these massive machines in and uh, it just it blows my mind it blows my mind that someone invented this it blows my mind that this technology exists and it blows my mind that I can have this treatment and walk away and get on with my life for the very next day um I'm so I am so appreciative of it but um
2: doesn't necessarily make the treatment any easier though does it i've uh, i've had the privilege of working in the stereotactic and yes it is hardcore for Mm. patients and as you said i think as much as you can try and prepare someone for the fact they're going to have a frame-fitted and screwed into the skull so that there is no movement for eight hours of lying on a couch. I'm not sure you can necessarily prepare someone for that, mentally as well as obviously physically. And uh, it was interesting you say that, because yesterday they had the um, source replaced in Sheffield (laughs) and uh, someone had said it was the largest quality street that had ever been (laughs) delivered to the Trust as it got essentially uh, (laughs) airlifted in. Um, So it is amazing, but as you say, you know, the fact that NHS trusts can't afford to replace the source routinely, so they have to wait for the half-life, which is essentially the decay of that radiation source, it means that, you know, if you're lucky enough to have treatment when it's newly replaced, then your treatment time will be much shorter than if it's at the end, and obviously trusts can't or don't necessarily um, then know how to pay for a replacement earlier because of patient patient experience it's really challenging from that um, perspective because you've achieved so much through your life of having cancer sharing your cancer experiences if you had your life again would you still choose to have got cancer which i know is a really hard question you may not be able to answer it or want to answer it
3: um yeah, I I think it's it's a great it is a great question and um someone asked me this actually the year I was diagnosed and and I think I just I was on such a high it was just after I'd won the Pride of Britain award and I was just like I was so happy because I could see so much purpose in my life and I was really like I was riding this crazy wave and before that I was like not happy before my diagnosis so and then at the time I was like absolutely like, I would never change this, like, I would never give back what I've, because that would mean that I'd have to give back everything I've learned and everything I've experienced and all these highs, and I was, like, not at all okay about doing that. Um, I would, I would never choose cancer. (laughs) I would absolutely, if someone said, "Do do you want a bit of this? I'd be like, no, thanks, but if I had to give back I wouldn't I would never want to give back everything that I have done, seen, learnt, loved, experienced over the last fourteen years. Um, and if that means that I have to have cancer to have learnt all those things and to have gained all those things then I guess so be it. I mean that's it's life, isn't it? And I think sometimes you don't learn specific things without an awful experience like cancer. And it's unfortunate. And maybe I would have learnt them, or experienced similar things, or achieved epic things without cancer, but we will never know. Um, But at this point, I would hate to give all that back, yeah.
1: Chris, on social media, um, and obviously your blog as well, you've been quite open, sort of. You know, talking about obviously living with cancer, mm. uh, but also death. Um, I know you recently talked about having a death doula, and how are you navigating with all of that side of things at the moment?
3: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm just a control freak. Um, I love to know the topic, whatever it is, inside out, and I get a bit obsessed by something. And I guess my most recent obsession is death. Um, <laughs> such fun. And I'm just, I guess, when it comes to you know my whole treatment and where um, and ha- how I've gotten to be where I am today, that has come off the back of me understanding cancer, understanding the treatments, and, and really getting my teeth into things. Um, that gives me a sense of control when in in a very uh, controlless situation, and it's really helped me mentally. And now it's kind of the same with death i mean this isn't something that i've it's not an overnight thing i accessed um hospice care in 2013 so that's i mean i can't even think anymore it's like 10 years ago and that's when i first understood that palliative care is about helping people live not necessarily die um but but also not ignoring the subject of death And pussyfooting around it. It's about understanding that you have control of a situation. At all times. And you can put things in place. And you can. I mean that's not necessarily going to happen. Like the same with birth plans for babies. Um, You can have all the best intentions. But then something might happen. And you might not give birth in a bath or whatever. But I think if you set the right intentions. And you can plan for a good death that is possible, you can plan for a good death, then I think it puts you in a much better place mentally to confront things that might seem really scary but actually don't have to be. And um has helped me to face my, I guess, my situation so much better. And, you know, I say this in my book, I say this quite a lot, but, like, talking about death doesn't bring it on any quicker. Um, it's it's not like listening and going, oh, she's ready for it, let's get her. Um. And for me, it's really just about understanding something better so I feel more in control. Um, and my, fr- I my friend said that she was going to do a death doula course online. And I thought, that sounds like fun. I'll do that too. And so the both of us did it together. And it was just really interesting. And a lot of these people were doing the course because they wanted to become death doulas. And these are people that have maybe retired or they've worked in care or they've seen someone die and they've been with someone at the end of life and they're just like now want to support other people towards the end of life and I was there not because I want to be a death doer but more because I was just so fascinated by the end of life and understanding it and getting to grips with it myself and I and I gained a lot from doing the course I really found it so interesting um, and again I got this sense of peace of like oh, well, the more I know the less I need to be scared of and um it's not something we have to fear or or hide away it's not a to be subject it absolutely shouldn't be a to be subject um so now i love talking about it i love sharing there's some and, and i've seen a real growth in that actually over the last 14 years there's been so many great accounts on instagram that talk about the end of life and grief and loss um that can help it sort of wedge into our day-to-day lives a bit more into our vocabulary a bit more um, and I think if it helps other people as well to kind of go there, then I'm really glad. But for me, I'm just like exp- I love exploring this topic a lot. Um, I do have an end of life doula, um, although I haven't spoken to her for a while. And I think that's you know that's the point. I I don't need someone every day. I don't need to speak to someone every day that about doom and gloom or like the end of my life. It's about what a death doula is—is is to support you towards the end of life. It can help; they can help with practical things, or they can just help, just being there and holding any fears or um, or any thoughts at all. And they can help support your uh, family, friends, and help them get to grips with my end of life. So it's not all on me. Um, so, in principle, it can be really beautiful. It can be. It can be not traumatic and people don't have to suffer. I'm not saying that that's guaranteed, obviously. Um, and unfortunately, it's not always going to be the way that you want. But um, I can picture and I can have conversations with people about how I'd want it to be. And it feels really healthy to do that. Really, really healthy.
1: Because you've talked about kind of managing or looking after your mental health as well with nature you mind telling us a bit about what you've been doing?
3: Um, I mean, I live in Cornwall. I live across the road from the sea. I can, I mean, I can literally see the water right now. Um, and that to me is, uh, it's a real source of calm and like bringing me back to like the here and now, um, which is something... I really need. I mean, we all need. Um, I think life can be ever so challenging, um, and sometimes it's just good to be grounded by things like nature and being outside, and just taking a good old deep breath outside. Um, and yeah, for me, you know, my life has definitely slowed down, especially since starting the chemotherapy. And it's and it's nice that I have I can have that. Um, the charity is very much not run by me anymore, and it's such. I'm humbled by the people that run it. They are amazing. Um, but I can still dip my foot in and get nosy and ask questions about stuff if I want to. Like, the door's not closed. <laughs> They're not like, oh her again. Um, so it's, it's, I'm in a sort of perfect situation, in, I guess, in that sense. Um, you know, anyone with cancer knows that they need, there's so many things that they need to look after. And often your oncologist isn't going to say, well, how are you nurturing your mental health? How are you looking after yourself? Like, how do you feel today? Does it feel really heavy today? Like, they're not gonna ask you that, but there are, um, you know, communities online or um, the people in my life know that that's important to me. And um, there are other ways of connecting with the, what's actually, what's actually really going on in your head um, when the oncologist mm-hmm. isn't.
1: Okay, so we're coming towards the end before we ask you for top tips, just have one question, which you don't have to answer if you don't feel comfortable, but how do you want to be remembered?
3: Oh God. Um, hmm. Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. And it's definitely something I've thought about But I still don't really have an answer yet I I think ultimately um, I don't necessarily want to be remembered For all the accolades And the whatever's And the titles of Being a CEO of a charity and all that Shit I want to be remembered for Giving people the opportunity To look after their health Look after their bodies, appreciate their health appreciate their bodies and um, crack on and live life as best they can um, I think that's more important than everything I've probably done but I think I needed to do all these things to kind of get to this point yeah I think that's that's where I'm at, at the moment
1: <laughs> what top tips would you give to any of our listeners
3: uh, top tips um, I think for patients listening, um, I think it's so. Well, oh, actually, no. This is for everyone. This is for everyone. It's about something I bang on about all the time. It's about um, personalised care, really treating the individual, um, looking at what's available, but then understanding what this person wants and needs, what they what they mean by quality of life, what's important to them, and then taking the treatment path or the treatment option. That it best suits that patient, not what the textbook says. Um, I think that is really important, and knowing that you, your your story is your story. No one else's story is your story. It's all in you. So, yeah, I'd say they're the most important things.
1: Thank you, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Joe and I have been texting each other. There's so much more we want to talk about. We'd keep you for hours if we could. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so, thank you all for listening to RadChat. Uh, your hosts today have been Norman Jo and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please consider the reflector questions posted, along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked to the podcast. So, our next guest to feature will be Mary Huckle, who will be talking about her experience of living with secondary cancer. Thank you all for listening and take care.